Today in the podcast, I have a lovely gentleman by the name of Nick Platoff, and he's a trombonist who comes from San Francisco. Well, actually, he comes from Connecticut, but he's living in San Francisco currently. And I'm looking at my notes over here, so if I'm glancing over, that's what I'm doing because there's a lot to read here. Um, Nick says on his website he is obsessed with music's ability to nourish and empower us. A lovely thought to have. He plays the trombone with the San Francisco Symphony and creates as a singer, improviser, composer, arranger, producer, concert producer, soloist, conductor and recording artist. <laughs> what a mouthful. He makes many kinds of music in many locations, teaches in the San Francisco Conservatory of Music pre-college division and for the San Francisco Symphony Youth Orchestra. And I have to say, you have some entertaining videos on your website over at nickplatoff.com. And not alone that, oh, big breath, you have a new album coming out this October called The Limousine of Creative Potential. Now we'll get to that later in the episode with the whole story surrounding that. But great to have you on. Thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Now, your father is a musicologist and he works in the university there in Connecticut and you're from Connecticut as well. So where did your musical journey start? Because, I mean, you're in a musical family. So as we would say here in Ireland, it's in the blood. <laughs> so Definitely I think it, lo it looks like it from your story by what I've seen. So take us on your musical journey. Where did it begin? Yeah, so I, I would say that it my uh, relationship with music began before I was aware that it was beginning. Um, there are, sometimes you, you have conversations with people who, who vividly remember their first concert or something. And I, I have plenty of vivid musical memories, but I, my, my dad is like the original music nerd. I mean, of course there were music nerds before my dad was a music nerd, but he must have loads. I can just picture a music nerd with like shelves of vinyls and CDs and your nose. You see one of those people. That's my dad. Yeah, <laughs> really. And, and he's somebody who, you know, like you grow up thinking that your parents are normal, which of yes. course they're they're not. Everybody's parents are total weirdos. Everybody's a weirdo. <laughs> but I grew up thinking <laughs> I grew up thinking that it, it's normal for, you know everybody to go to the opera and go to the symphony and be listening to the Beatles and be listening to Sunday Baroque every Sunday. And so, I mean, play. you got a full range. It wasn't just classical music. Oh, it was yeah. like a whole range of stuff. My dad is a, a, a Mozart opera scholar, sort of originally his PhD is in Mozart opera. I mean, his, his PhD is in musicology and his sort of scholarly work is largely in opera buffa from the, the period of when Mozart was writing opera. So Mozart okay. and his contemporaries. Okay. Um, and then later in his career, he kind of developed this secondary specialty in the Beatles and 60s rock and roll. Um, what a and contrast. He teaches, yeah, I mean, so and he where he teaches at Trinity College, it's a small department, so he covers lots of, you know, he teaches theory and, and Beethoven and 20th century music and Bach okay. and all of that. All of that. Yeah. And so... Yeah, I grew up with. I I know I know for a fact that I attended operatic performances um, when I before I was born. <laughs> you know, when my mother was pregnant. You know, they yeah. went to concerts and. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was just all very normal um, for my whole life, and I watched my dad cry when he listened to Mozart, and 
my older sister played the piano growing up and we used to sing rounds in the car. Um, I mean, one, one story that I like to tell about my sort of relationship with music in, in childhood, just to sort of date me for a second, I'm, I'm 30 years old at the time of this recording. And um, when I was maybe eight or 10 years old, this was around the time that minivans started to come with TV screens in them. Okay. And so many of my friends, when they would go on the, you know, get in the van and go to grandma's house or whatever they were doing, yeah. would be watching Shrek or SpongeBob in the, in the, in yeah, their car. Yeah, parents stuff, wanted yeah. to keep them yeah. entertained and keep them from screaming and shouting. And, and I remember thinking, oh, I wish we had one of those cars. <laughs> and my parents were never, ever going to get one of those minivans. Yeah. And we used to sing rounds as a family. I have two sisters, and both of my parents love to sing, too. And we would sing Row, Row, Row Your Boat and other other songs. Oh, it's such fun, though, when you get that I mean, going in a family unit. It's such totally. fun. It's totally So we fun. just grew up thinking that that was totally normal. And my older sister is the classic overachiever. You know, I mean, in addition to playing the piano and she was composing, she was a really accomplished um, ballet dancer and went on to study biochemistry and now she's a surgical resident. I mean, just, oh my so goodness. I, was always, I was always trying to compete with her. And so I remember when she was maybe seven or eight, she started to just improvise vocal harmonies sometimes in the car when we'd be singing something and she would just make something up. And I remember thinking like, well, I could do that. <laughs> and, and so I, you know, there was just, Music was, was just happening. Yeah, it was just bre like breathing. It was just yeah. part of your life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But where did you pick up the trombone then? Because, I mean, it sounds like there was a piano in your home. There was all this music. But how did the trombone come into your life? And how did you decide to focus on the trombone? So I started taking trombone lessons in fourth grade with a really wonderful teacher named Jim Fryer. And what attracted and you to it? I... Uh, so around, I guess, second or third grade, I was sometimes getting into trouble at the, the neighbor's house. We would, we would all be playing and I would, I had a lot of energy and I would, I, I guess I like broke something at their house and my mom thought that I needed a hobby or, or yeah, something. Some form to, of nice discipline. Yeah. Yeah. And I started uh, taking recorder lessons. There's a, a wonderful community, it's called the Neighborhood Music School in New Haven where I grew up. And they offer lessons and music theory and summer jazz camp and youth orchestra. And I ended up spending quite a lot of time there as a kid. And so I, I took recorder lessons for a year and really loved that. And then in fourth grade, uh, we, I was lucky to have a really great band program at my elementary school. And there was that classic day where the band director brings out all the instruments and you get to look and see which one you would want to do. And... I remember having attended uh, a performance by the high school jazz band sometime before that, yeah. and they they played the, some medley of James Bond music, some and I thought fun music. This yeah. is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. And they they didn't have enough trombone players for some reason. Maybe they only had two or something. And I was a tall kid, and it just sort of occurred to me that there was a need for trombone players and that mm -hmm. if I picked the trombone, um, I was also, you know, tall enough 
yeah. play it that if I played the trombone, there would be a place for me. And as a, you know, just a, a kid who wants to be accepted and I wasn't super great at sports, I, I saw like this could be my, my thing, this could be my place. Yeah. And so I started playing trombone. I took lessons with this amazing uh, jazz musician, Jim Fryer, who really centered trombone playing on having fun from the very beginning oh, of our that's, lesson. Oh, that's a gift. I mean, so that's key. A and gift. Of, course, a gift. of course, he taught me plenty of technical, technical. things and mm -hmm. set me up very well. But I just, I loved playing trombone and I loved my lessons. I suppose through that, and... then you started exploring a lot of improvisation, which you mightn't get in the real classical circles as such. Totally. You know, the way, which keeps you interested, keeps the creativity buzzing. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so uh, what's, from, what from, genres yeah. of music do you play i mean there's classical in your background that your father loves the beatles and all of that study and now you have jazz coming to the mix it sounds yeah, like totally. you can do this whole range well i would say that you know there was a lot of different music happening mm -hmm. in my house and i started out studying with this jazz teacher and then a few years later he moved to i guess he moved to new york to take some teaching position and I started studying with a more straight ahead classical teacher. So I would still play jazz in the school jazz band and I sang and played trombone in some more rock bands with friends in high school. Okay. But I started to focus more on, on classical music right. as yeah. far as my own personal practice. Um, and the big turning point was when I was 16, I went to the Brevard Music Center, which is a, a summer music festival in mm -hmm. North Carolina. Okay. And that was the first time that I uh, got to engage with the music of Gustav Mahler. Okay. And okay. we played his first symphony and I just, you know, just emotional fell in teenagers. Love, got like, connected. Is, yeah. I'd never felt those feelings before and I'd never been in a a musical immersion like community of mm -hmm. everybody is a nerdy 16 year old who's obsessed with Mahler. And what Stroud. an environment to be in. You know, it's amazing. Yeah, it and, is and really. I felt, yeah. I mean, it, I, it was, yeah. Yeah. But what I was just about to say there is that, you know, when you're in that environment of like minds and strong, intense interest and on an understanding as well, a deep understanding of the music, it makes for an exciting position to be in. Oh, absolutely. It's, it was so inspirational mm -hmm. to keep you motivated, to keep you going. And I mean, at that time, then I'm sure you're practicing, you're learning your technique and so on. Talk me through what was your practicing schedule like when you were trying to reach the thresholds of better and better skill all the time? Yeah, I would say that. So 16 was kind of a, a, a major turning point for my relationship with trombone and classical music. And I mean, music in general. It became clear to me at that time, I want to focus on this. I want to have a career in music. Mm. And up until that point, you know, I, I, Connecticut was not the biggest community. Like it was, I would say it was not a very large pond, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. There were, without having dedicated myself super fully, you know, I grew up in the right house. My dad was a musician. I was talented enough, the trombone was a good fit. I didn't try very hard and I was the best trombone. Able to play. I yeah. I got first trombone in all the regional things without really 
trying very hard. Yeah. And then I went to Brevard and I was by far the worst trombonist there. Because this was a, a national thing. People came from all over. Yeah, bigger pond. We were doing Juilliard pre-college. And mm -hmm. there were kids there who had played Mahler before and knew who Mahler was. And I was completely new. And so I realized that, you know, my level was here. And for those of you just listening, I'm putting my, my hand at a low level on the screen. Yeah. And the, the level of other kids was way higher. My other hand is now at the top of the screen. And I needed to get my act together. And start practicing so it just kind of became my purpose in life to yeah practice and as I mean, much as I could isn't it and... very isn't it very interesting that like you're in your community you think you're doing great and then you move out of that community into the bigger scene and look at who you're surrounded by to learn from as well yeah you know to even raise you higher which is you know what all parts of development coaches refer to surround yourself with people better than yourself to raise higher Absolutely. It's, it's so true, isn't it? It's so true. Totally. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the environment. I say it all the time in the podcast and I'm speaking independently, you know, to students listening or parents listening. It's the environment you create at home. It's the people you're around. It's where you go to to listen to really good quality music and so forth. And that's Absolutely. what creates this burning desire to, to really go for it. Um, fascinating story. Can I add now, one, one thing to that? Just yeah, for, sure. Because I, I know that we're, we're speaking to students and educators. Mm -hmm. I would say that um, one thing that I have always advised all of my, especially I, I work with a lot of high school age musicians okay. who are thinking about where they want to go study for, for college. And one of the things that, at least in the States for trombone players that I work with, there's a lot of focus on, oh, I want to go to this school and study with that teacher. And that is hugely important. You, you really want to be studying with the best teachers that you possibly can. But yeah. I would say that something that, that seems perhaps even a level of greater importance than that is the kind of studio that you're going to be entering and who your peers are going to be. Yeah, very Because true. As, you, as we were talking about, you want to be surrounded by people who will motivate you and inspire you and... Yes, you want and... to, you want to go you want to enter the the best possible I mean if your goal is to just grow and improve mm. you ideally want to be in a studio where you'll have opportunities and everything but most of the people are playing better than you are oh, and totally. it's normal it's a normalized thing in your community for the the level to be extremely high yeah, you won't be right. pushed as much and you won't have that need to grow if you walk in and you're already the the oh, definitely, 100%. And I mean, the caveat to that, though, that I see, and I have seen this, I've witnessed this, is that for the student who's really gifted, but maybe that bit quieter, that um, they need to be nurtured a bit in that type of environment because it is highly competitive. It can become that way. And I don't want to say elitist. That's the wrong way to approach it. But it's just I'm, I'm, I have a heart for those people that mightn't have the strength, the character, and they need to just be nurtured. And if they're nurtured, they True. will get there. And they're amazing. That's a very good point. Yeah, they need to be nurtured. I, will so say, just I think that for, for me, having a combination of different places like that was really yeah. very key. Oh, I can see that in your story completely, completely. Um, you say here, and I read it there at the start of the interview, that you are obsessed with music's ability to nourish and empower us. Can you speak more about that? Like, why did you put that in your website? Why does that inspire you so much to even write that sentence? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, 
so in the in the Bay Area, you know, we're very close to Silicon Valley in California, which is this hub of tech innovation. And a couple of my closest friends work in tech, and they're wonderful musicians as well. But there's this when I was they were helping me to build my website a few years ago and they were asking me like okay what's your mission statement and this is something that i think musicians are not always talking about but people who are in the business world are always like what's the mission statement you know it's yeah what's your message basically and when i thought about it there i love listening to music i love sharing music and something that I feel very blessed to have is this relationship with, with music where I'm very easily moved powerfully yeah. by music. And I think that this come, this came from watching my dad be moved powerfully by music. There are, you know, if you're not present and you don't have this, you know, some people just, I have friends who didn't have a very strong relationship with music and they, they like it, but it it's not It doesn't move them. You yeah, know? it doesn't move not, their emotion. It's always been the most important thing in my life. And I feel extremely lucky that I have access to this, mm. this capacity to be inspired and to be healed by music. And I just I just feel that if I could share this reaction Passion. that I have to music yeah. Yeah. to other people and if i could find a way to imbue my performance and my compositions with that essence that that would be a really profound offering Amazing that would be the, the best thing that i could offer to people and you know that that brings me to the point of like when somebody's performing on stage like you yourself perform um how do you make that connection with the audience happen because the most memorable concert is the one where you are moved as in as you're sitting listening to the music being played. And from a performance standpoint, what do you do to try and make that connection happen to the audience to hopefully move people emotionally mm -hmm. to go beyond the barriers of language, which has often been mentioned in musical circles, you know, that music goes beyond the boundaries of language. That's a great question. I feel like that's, that's kind of the question that, you know, we're all, all of us musicians are trying to figure out how to make that connection with our audience. The things that come to mind for me, it's sort of a, a two-part answer. The first part of this, I think, has to do with creating the right container. So I think that probably many of us are, are familiar with the phenomenon of having a connection with somebody who's on stage, we will have a, a better experience at the concert if, if we're like oh my friend is on stage or yeah you know i've been listening to this band for years you know the people's names you know what they're like it's easier to connect with music being made by people who you know yeah so i try to especially within the classical world really keep things informal and i try to really be myself on social media in interactions with audience members if i'm going to a symphony donor event i i really try to be myself and and give people access to who i am as a person which i think gives them kind of permission to be like oh i know that guy on stage and so in yeah. classical music because there's 
you know, we're wearing formal wear and we're separated by a, a longer distance. Mm -hmm. There's, there's this, there can be a wall yeah. between the audience and us. So I try to break down that wall. That, I would say that's part one. And stage presence, I think, has, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to allude to that idea that, you know, classical music gets a hard hit because it seems elitist by the very nature of its presentation. Mm -hmm. And leading on from that, then the most remarkable classical musicians that seem to have a very strong relationship with our following are those people that are authentic. They really come from the deep soul heart basis of what the music is about. And they're able to translate that with such intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I've observed um, among just a very small handful of musicians that I've really studied closely as to how they do their craft. Mm. Um, I think that, well, I'll ask this question like when you're looking at interpreting a piece of music, um, what do you do to try and make that interpretation really felt and really emotionally driven? What do you do? Yeah. So I would say that that's pretty much the second part of, mm. of trying to make this connection. So the, if the first part is creating familiarity, comfort, authenticity, getting the vibe right in the room. And then I, one of my best friends said something that, the best way to be compelling is to be compelled by what you're saying, yes. what you're, what you're doing. Passionate. And so when I'm thinking about how I'm going to make an impact with this piece of music, I would say that it, it starts with, it starts and ends with my own relationship with the piece of music. And I, I need to, it's my job as a performer, whether it's something I've written, whether it's some, piece of music that's put on my stand that I haven't chosen, but it's my job to make the, just squeeze all of the juice that I can out of this music. Mm -hmm. I'm going to study this. I'm going to listen to recordings, studying the score, whatever sort of technical analytical tools I have to understand this music, make it a part of me and figure out why it moves me. Find the moments that are the real, um, cornerstones of the real expressive climaxes uh, and trying to understand why does this touch me the way that it does? And then I think that I will probably have a very successful performance, which I would define by how much the audience is enjoying Response, it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How much they respond, I think will be, um, closely correlated to how much I'm enjoying it. Mostly. I've heard some, yeah, I've heard some music, musicians saying that when you're performing, you get rid of yourself in your head and you think of the people sitting on the chair listening to you more than yourself. Of course, you have to concentrate on your craft mm. and all of that, but it's for them that you're doing the music. It's not so much for yourself. Do you agree with that idea? Interesting. I, I think that there are times when that happens, I think that probably my most satisfying performance moments are when I'm not really thinking at all. When you're and in what people just, loosely say flow state, would you? Yeah, when, when, yeah. when I feel I'm flowing and it's just listening and, and doing, just mm -hmm. being with, with the music. I think that there are also other moments when 
I'm really thinking directly about the audience. But it's a mix. Yeah, there's there's a there's a whole journey of you know as isn't as it a fascinating one though if you could just yeah like you know when we look at the brain there's all these fireworks going off when you play music and I mean doesn't that tell you then that it's a, such a multifaceted skill and it takes so many different viewpoints to fully understand its impact on the human psyche it's Absolutely. it's it's incredibly fascinating it really is now you mentioned as well that you mentioned in passing there that you compose and i you know introduced you saying you are a singer an improviser you're a composer arranger producer concert producer soloist conductor and recording artist <laughs> Whew, what a mouthful so what inspires you the most Oof. I mean, I hope this isn't kind of a cop out to answer it like this, but I would say that what inspires me the most is just music with a capital M. And yeah, I mean, I some feel... people get so inspired by nature or situations around them, or it could be somebody walking down the streets with something really funny and it just goes plink. It's inspiration. Yeah. Like, I mean, how does I, I, how I, does it come across you? You, do you mean with compositions specifically? With compositions and all of that, yeah. With the creative yeah. process. I would say that... Uh, okay, so I mean, when, when I was answering like music with a capital M, I guess what I, what I thought you were saying is what inspires you like with, with everything is, uh, is just sort of this, this magical thing of music mm -hmm. that can make people dance and make people cry and make them laugh and make them ask, you know, really hard questions and become better people and be moved for a revolution and like all of these things make people help people fall in love and enjoy food and it's this like you know jedi magical thing that um i i don't totally understand that is what inspires me to do everything that i do with with composition specifically i think that my best ideas come really the only ideas uh ever come when i'm out of my own way and so I find that a lot of times if I want to write, the best thing that I could do is be giving myself lots of space and not be trying too hard. So if I'm meditating, that is one of the best times for the muse to just, just you know, I'm just, I'm just lying there breathing, sitting there breathing, whatever, I or I'm going yeah, on a walk yeah. through the woods Makes and without... Sense without meaning to, I start hearing things. Yeah. And the best thing that I can do is immediately take my phone and record a voice memo, just sort of sing and explain into my phone what I'm hearing. And then the next opportunity I have to, to sit at my computer with, my, with my, my mic and my MIDI controller and all of the things, and then just sort of bring that to life and get all the ideas that I have down and then kind of figure out well okay if this is this part then logically what needs to happen after next. that next yeah, yeah yeah speaking to somebody recently um that's very successful in music they, one of the points that they made is the ego you've got to get rid of the ego oh um, yeah that's step a great it out way, of the way to write terrible step music it out of the, yeah <laughs> step it out of the way and be just your authentic self in whatever form of music yeah. you choose to express um now you have an album coming out and it's called The Limousine of Creative Potential. Now, before we head into the album, actually, there's some amazing videos on your website. There's one very funny one talking about get rid of the addiction from the phone. 
Um, you know, it's a funny video. I'd recommend anyone to look at it because it's thought provoking. There's a lot of sense to that video. I'll leave it there. But going back to your album, the limousine of creative potential. What's the story around that one? All right. So let's. I'll take us back uh, to March 2020. Okay. And this is, of course, when the world shut down, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, we were supposed to go on this glorious European tour with San Francisco Symphony uh, oh. in March and April 2020. It was the, the final season of uh, Michael Tilson Thomas being our music director, ending his 25-year... T- I mean, it was just going to be legendary. All yeah. over Europe, Mahler and Stravinsky. Yeah. So looking forward to this tour. And then, of course, about two or three days before we were going to leave, the whole thing got canceled because of covid and and so I had planned to move to a new apartment after this tour. So I'd gotten out of my lease. I'd moved out of my apartment on March 15th. And then, of course, and the plan was I'm going to be on tour. I don't need to be paying rent in San Francisco. And so suddenly it's March 15th and I don't have a place to live. Oh, and so I, I got a, a very lucky phone call from one of my best friends saying, hey, you know, I live in this intentional community. There's about 15 people living in this big house together and somebody's leaving. Do you want to move in? And I immediately said yes. Oh my goodness. And, and then it, it ended up because, you know, the, everything got complicated with the pandemic. The The person who said she was going to move out ended up not wanting to move out. And so, but at this point we were in lockdown and I didn't have anywhere to go. And it really wasn't, um, responsible for me to be moving around and interacting with different people. So I was like, okay, I mean, I need to, you know, we found a mattress and, and put it in the living room and I, that's where I slept <laughs> for a couple of months. And, you know, it, it, it was, it ended up being a very fun time because I had good friends who lived there and we were in a beautiful part of the country. And, but little by little, our concerts started to get canceled. So the first, the tour was canceled. And then a couple of weeks later, they said, all right, everything in April is going to be canceled. And then everything in May was canceled and nobody knows what's going on. And of course, I presume you're not getting any earnings now at this point as an artist doing your at thing. This, I mean, you know, how are you surviving financially speaking? I um, am extremely lucky. And this was, as, as many people know, not the case for many musicians and not even the case for every orchestra. But we, we did take a significant pay cut uh as 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 musicians of san francisco symphony but we they they kept us afloat and we kept our health insurance and i'm extremely grateful oh my goodness that's great so i was able to you know pay rent at this place and yeah and do your thing extremely lucky and so what happened was we get to april and my friend recommended that i do this thing called song a day for a month which is a, a whole online community for any songwriters listening I would re- I would highly recommend checking out songadayforamonth.com. Okay. Exactly what it sounds like. It's okay. a community of people just, you know, one of the ways to write a great song is to, you know, spend a lot of time and perfect it. And another way to write a great song is to write 30 songs and just pick the best one. Amazing. And yeah. and this is actually I think what a lot of the best songwriters do. You know, if you think about you know, George Gershwin or John Lennon and Paul McCartney, they just outputted a huge volume 
of songs and, and just picked from that you know some of them are better than others but it's not like they wrote 10 songs and all of them are great like they wrote hundreds of songs and many 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 of them are great and so i had all the time in the world nothing going on and the decided to do this song a day for a month project and because i was living in a in a living room i didn't have a quiet place to record but my friend Joel, who was one of the residents of this place, is a lovely, amazing, eccentric person. And he owns a limousine, which they would use for fun if they were going to a party or something. Oh, that's fun. Pretty fun to own your own yeah. limousine. Yeah. But the limousine was, of course, not going anywhere. It was sitting in the driveway. And so I asked Joel if I could bring my computer and my MIDI controller and my little field recorder into his limousine and use it as a studio space because it was just sitting, sitting there. there. And, yeah. And he yeah. said yes. And so for 30 days, I went in there into that limousine, which was quiet. You know, I could close the doors and yeah. Yeah. could open the door and, you know, go for a little walk around the trees whenever I wanted to. And I had this I had this this battery that's used for, you know, if you're going on a camping trip and you want to yes, charge yes. stuff, I had like a little yeah. battery like that, which powered my laptop. And <laughs> I went in there for the month of April and wrote a song every day. Yeah. And the other the other important thing that I had in, in that limousine was my Zoom calls with my therapist. Right, okay. So normally we had in-person meetings once a week, but of course we switched to Zoom. And so I would you know, bring my phone into the limousine because it was, it was my only private space in this, in this, in this house. busy household, yeah. And, you know, with 15 roommates. <laughs> so <laughs> quite a number. I had my therapy in there and I wrote my music in there. And it, at some point, my therapist referred to this space as the limousine of creative potential. And I just felt, at that time, I was like, this is the name of the album. <laughs> That, that is a hilarious story in one way. Yeah. I'm sure it is challenging at times, but I mean, just to think about how you were kept from, God forbid it, but being on the streets or having a worse situation. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Because I've heard stories of many artists that, as you know yourself, you know, met hard times. And so what can people expect to hear in this album? Is it songs? Is it just instrumental music? So it's a wide variety. Uh, I started... I started composing relatively recently, about 2017 or 18, I started to write my first things. And it was really just a kind of release um, because I got this job in 2016, was pretty young when I started uh, with San Francisco Symphony. And for a while my focus had been to, you know, focus on trombone, get a job in an orchestra, and then I achieved it and yeah, I felt this yeah. void. I, I need more. I need. Yeah. The challenge was gone of, of reaching that threshold. Yeah. And I, around that time started to listen to a lot of Jacob Collier was okay. mega Jacob Collier, super fan for a while there and felt inspired by this, this kid younger than me with a computer and some instruments, just doing whatever he wanted. And, genre hopping as he likes to say yes. and so my writing is it's just a it's whatever i want it doesn't really i would say the rule was that it wasn't what i was doing on stage with 
with the orchestra. Yeah, so, which is complete contrast. So some of it is, uh, I would say more of them, I would, I would call them songs rather than pieces, but some of them are more kind of classical-ish and classical piece-ish. And There's, do you write lyrics for your songs, or are they just instrumental? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, lyrics as well. Okay. So this this album, there will be I think nine tracks on it, mm -hmm. and some of them are sillier songs. Um, I'm I'm rapping in one of the songs. There are songs that are only instrumental. There's uh, there are two songs with string orchestra. There's one that's a kind of jungly marimba solo uh that my my friend diversely in uh in san francisco symphony our principal percussionist recorded that for me and there's a, a song called the ocean which when this podcast uh comes out will have already been released um where there are several three singers uh, myself included overdubbing ourselves many many there i mean hundreds of vocal tracks on this where we attempt to be the voice the ocean and that's a kind of a big stevie wonder funk anthem kind of thing yeah yeah uh yeah i mean it, it's just there's a, a sounds recording. really interesting there's there's one one song called devon and do it which is um a, a recording i made of my my cousin telling a story that she told at my, our grandfather's funeral about how he taught her to drive and i built music around her storytelling oh, that's beautiful that's beautiful there's, there's really just a, a very wide range of things and and as we discussed earlier my my goal is in these different sound worlds different genres mm -hmm. to give the listener something they can use to make them laugh if that's if that's what the purpose of the song is or to inspire them you know devon do it i think of as a very inspiring the at the climax of the song the sort of the life lesson of this driving lesson that our grandfather gave my cousin Devin yeah. was if you're going to do anything do it with distinction and, yes. and that yeah. ends up being kind of the the thesis of this so i mean just with, with with all of the all of the music it's i'm i'm hoping to give something healing something inspiring and the way that i've been inspired so many days of my life by Mahler and Stevie Wonder and Jacob Collier and Esperanza Spalding. It's a wide range. It's, it's really interesting. That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, it's really interesting listening to you because, you know, some people get so honed in on one genre of music and that's it. And that's fine. But isn't it so exciting to explore all these genres? It's and too to, fun to not do oh, it. The world of music is endless. I mean, when you really get stuck in and you just start exploring all these improvisation techniques and styles and then, you know, somebody said to me recently, you know, you look at maybe a song written by the Beatles or Joni Mitchell or someone, and then you reach back behind them and you see who inspired them. And then you reach back behind that person. And before you know, you've, you're on this pathway of discovery and what you're realizing is just an amazing amount of gold at your fingertips as it were to to really push you on into new realms of music so fascinating story so where will people be able to get this album that's the next question yeah uh we're gonna put it out everywhere i would say probably the easiest place is on streaming services like spotify and, and apple okay. music mm -hmm. um but and can these links be found on your website you'll have them all yeah. there 
Yeah. yeah. So go to yeah, the website I'll make sure for everything. Every, all those links are accessible. If you just search for Nick Platoff on Spotify or Apple Music, you can find me there or my website, nickplatoff.com. I, I, I say I'm, I'm pretty easy to find on the internet. <laughs> and just to finish this episode, what would be the best piece of advice you'd give a music student who would ache to either get up in the concert stage, maybe do that as well as compose, songwrite? What would be the best piece of advice you'd give them now as they're going up the thresholds of learning? Hmm. Hard to choose one, but I would say that as, as somebody who doesn't, doesn't always succeed in following this advice, but I do the best when I do follow this commandment, is to preserve your, your healthy relationship with music itself. It How is do you really, go about that? I, I just think that it's in our, in the education system, in the music business system, music is uh, commoditized. Is that, is that the right way to say that? It, music becomes a business, it becomes a profession, and it's really easy to lose touch with the big reasons, the big reason why you wanted I to be music I can't actually agree with you. Place. Yeah, I totally agree with what you say, because I've seen it, that yeah. um, there was a period... Very unfortunate. With, oh yeah, there was a period in my own life where I just wanted to walk uh, for many different reasons, and then in the walking away, I rediscovered why I was in the world of music in the first place. So it's an interesting Why'd you get back? <laughs> I'm here now anyway. <laughs> I would just say that in, in lessons, it's really, you know, if you're studying an instrument, mm -hmm. you need to work on your rhythm and you need to yes. work on your intonation and learn repertoire. And there's really all these things that musicians need to be able to do. And if you're an artist going out there or you're selling your music, you're trying to sell tickets, it's very easy to think of this sacred magical thing, which we've talked about that makes us feel things and can inspire people to do all range of things. It's easy to see this as a product that needs to be sold. A business and I structure. Think that if you get stuck in that mindset, you won't have fun anymore. And the music very that you true. make will suffer as a result. And I think that we all kind of know it's true that our favorite musicians are the ones who maintain this childlike, innocent, pure relationship with whether they're selling out stadiums or or playing perfectly in tune or whatever. You know, I, I think, they, what, yeah, they, they've discovered how pure. to protect their private space to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a large part to do with it by what I've observed. I don't know whether you agree with that or not, but... You know, you can get so, as you're correctly saying, you get so taken over by the business element, uh, by the element even of expectation, mm. um, by the feeling you have to fit into a certain square box, as it were, that if you remove yourself from all of that and you keep your, your space sacred and separate to protect that God-given talent, um, it's a special space to be in. Very interesting. Totally. Now, I just have a few questions before we complete the episode. And sure. I think you've explained a number of musical secrets in this episode so far. But have you anything at all really that has impacted you deeply about the whole musical journey that you've been on so far? 
I would say a kind of silver bullet for improving as a musician that is not always talked about, at least in the in the circles that I'm in, is listening. And it's, I think, I'll just speak from my own perspective, in, in particular as a, an instrumentalist. You know, you have, let's say, three hours in the day that you have available to work on your, you know, to, to practice, let's say. If you practice your scales and practice your pieces, your long tones, whatever, for the full three hours, that's good. But it's probably not as, but if, if outside of that three hours, you don't have time where you're listening to great concerts, listening to great recordings, expanding the, the mental model of what, you know, pretty much we listen to a bunch of stuff and our brain learns like, oh my God, that is possible. Or yeah. this is the way that people play Mozart. This is the way this person plays Mozart. Expanding, would you say, call it expanding your frame of reference? Yes, I totally would. That's a great way of putting it. There's, there's, um, my teacher or one of my many amazing teachers that I got to study with at Northwestern is a, a Chicago symphony trombonist named Michael Mulcahy. And he said a lot of really wise things. But one of the things that he said as sort of a, he was big on sort of commandments, like big, simple sentences. Yeah, with profound um, meanings, it sounds like. He would say, no, hear, play. And so as you're approaching whatever piece of music you're going to play, you know how it goes, you hear, you audiate how it sounds, and then you play. Yeah. And if you, uh, an analogy that I like to use in my uh, teaching a lot is, I, I think music and food and music and cooking specifically have a lot of parallels. And it's, it's a nice way to explain things because everybody eats, everybody understands. Yeah. If you're trying to learn to make delicious spaghetti, one way to approach that is to meticulously follow a recipe of this much water with this much salt and this many pounds of pasta and this brand of tomato and all of these things. But really, I think the best way to learn to make great spaghetti is to go, go eat a lot of great spaghetti yeah. and experiment a lot and really make the process of this cooking a part of you that you understand not just intellectually, but also in your body. Very in, well in ways said. that you would have a hard way of describing in words. And, and as musicians, we, this is something that, you know, my, my teacher, Michael Mulcahy, he, he would ask us, how many Chicago Symphony concerts have you attended this semester? How many performances of the opera? How many chamber music concerts have you attended? Because this is the way that you grow as a musician. Of course you practice, but you need to know what's possible musically oh yes completely and, and isn't then it, figure out how to do it yourself isn't it amazing that you know if you don't like a piece of music how difficult it is to even do it that oh, you've, yeah. it's got to reach the deep part of you it really oh, has yeah. and in the process of going through the depth of expression and going beyond the sheet music and you know this discussion of doing music theory as a study why is it valuable you'd see some students asking that basic question why is it valuable it gets you beyond the sheet of music um, to understand the bigger world, as it were, of sheet music and what's beyond it, which mm -hmm. is really interesting. And leading from that point of view, do you think researching and reading up about composers' lives, oh. the times that they lived in, 
what their lifestyles were like, the ups and downs of their lives, the exciting parts, the boring parts, their diaries, even reading their diaries. Do you think that's of great benefit? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I mean, there's 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 a lot of things that you can do to become a better musician but i think that's that, that goes without like saying it's just it's just yeah. your bread and butter of, of doing it properly um what would you say has created the most impact in your musical life now i'd call that a musical secret but what has created the most impact obviously your father had a huge impact on you Good question. What has created the most impact? I would say just listening to lots of great music and getting to collaborate with really, you know, my teachers, my teachers, I would say, have been one of the biggest impacts on me yeah. who have helped, helped me to uh, helped me help to unblock ways that I couldn't figure out this technique or I couldn't do this because I wasn't approaching it from the right direction. And the people who come in with, you know, I mean, Professor Just words Mulcahy, of wisdom in a sense at the time when you're people, struggling. Yeah. People that I worked with at all, all stages of my education. And, and of course I'm continuing to take lessons and I'm now more focused on composition lessons i mean i'm trying to get better at trombone all the time too of course and i do still sometimes take trombone lessons with with people i find really inspirational yeah. but i would say yeah my teachers yeah my teachers and my sharing colleagues sharing words of wisdom really isn't it and what is the best tool you choose to use now you mentioned um earlier on in the interview about meditation and or walking in the woods where the that spark of inspiration comes and just hits you and people often question where does that spark of inspiration come from mm, like mm -hmm. let's try and understand this but stepping aside from that what is the best tool you choose to use to keep you going on your journey like in a, in a general sense in a general sense in a general sense i think when you're a musician just to talk about this aspect you know when you're a musician it's a whole life experience. Yeah. I think that the, the best habit that I developed during the pandemic was to, to marry a, listening to new music with um, a stretching routine that a coach I was working with taught me. And so every morning I go outside and I put on some new music that I've never heard before. Mm -hmm. And I stretch, you know, just full body, you know, all wrist yeah, and your neck body and going. back yeah. and hips. And so, I mean, that's like a really, you know, healthy, healthy thing makes me feel great. But just, it's like going to a new restaurant every day. And yeah. inevitably, sometimes you like the music more than other days. Other, some days it's like, okay, cool. You know, I listen to this new thing. And other days, you know, you hear music that changes your life. And, it's and, so true. Yeah. you know, you, this is going to change the way I play. This is going to change the way that I write. Are there some memorable song that is really the melody line maybe impacts you in a very unique way? Yeah. You all know? kinds of elements. Yeah. All kinds. And what is the number one growth tip you've discovered? Like I, well, I'll just be personally speaking that the world of music for me, for example, has been a personal development course in itself. <laughs> 
because yeah. I've had to reach deep in order to express. <laughs> so I'm just wondering, what is the number one growth tip that you've discovered? I would choose probably for performers, the, the most humbling thing and the, the really the best, the, the fastest way to improve any performers, this is this would be a good thing to remember from this podcast. Okay. I would say is is the recorder, yeah. and specifically, you know, almost everybody has a mobile phone. I would imagine almost everybody listening to this has a phone where you can press a button and take a video of yourself playing through whatever it is, singing through whatever it is, whatever stage you're at in your preparation process for your performance. Just put the phone on the music stand or, you know, balance it on thing and take a video of yourself doing a full run through of the song or, or the piece and then watch the performance, listen, take some notes and really see what it sounds like. As we say as brass players, we're behind the bell and we don't, we really yeah. don't know what it sounds like in front of the bell until we see a recording or, or, or listen to a recording. And that will help you really understand how you actually sound instead of how you think you sound while your full brain capacity can't be in the performance that, because exactly. you're using your brain to perform, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you don't hear those elements. Um, I can't tell you, personally speaking, how many times I recorded, you know, in an effort to just get the piece where you I needed it to be for whatever. Yeah. It's and I mean, we've all these devices around us now. And I remember there was a student one time that I was tutoring and that particular student thought he was brilliant. His ego was huge. And then his dad said, hang on a minute. I'm going to get a video camera. I'm going to stick it up there beside the piano and get you on camera and did the recording and all the rest. The student come around and saw the video and said, oh, my, that bad. Oh, <laughs> like this. It just reframed his whole understanding of where he was at. But it was a good thing. It it's helped him to achieve. It helped him to achieve medicine. a higher standard. Yeah, helped him to achieve a higher standard. Well, just to remind people, before we finish, your website is nickplatoff.com. The link will be in the description below. And what a pleasure to have you on. And thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Sylvia, thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. Pleasure, pleasure.